0: What are you gonna do when it is difficult to show mercy?
1: What is the tool that you're working with when you are working with a video game? It is always a choice between either or.
0: Christ is not vulnerable in the sense that the very act of him not fighting back is an act of mercy. The one who has seen the surface will return, and the underground will go empty.
2: There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. there are no new rhymes, yet to be sung, there are no new chords that strings haven't strummed.
0: Hello dear listeners, you're listening to Unreliable Narrators, the former number one arts podcast in Slovakia. And now, we're not sure what they think of us. Their president won't return our calls. Before we dive into the episode, though, we have just a few short announcements. First of all, our email address is changing. So if you would like to write to us, and we would love it if you would, our email is now unreliablepodcasters at gmail.com. Again, that's unreliablepodcasters at gmail.com. Second, a huge thank you and shout out to our Paradiso level patron, Amy, and thanks to all our other patrons at the Purgatorio and Inferno levels. And if you want to support us on Patreon, please visit our Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash unreliablenarratorspodcast. Third, don't forget to rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. That really helps us to expand our audience and reach more people, so thank you. If you've already rated and reviewed us, we have an assignment for you. Text one friend that you think would enjoy listening to our podcast. Better yet, send that friend a link to a particular episode you know they would love. Maybe they're a fan of Full Metal Alchemist, maybe they love Finding Nemo, there's something for everyone here. And word of mouth is the best way to get the word out, whether you're preaching the gospel or advertising a podcast or doing both at the same time. That's all for now. On to the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Sophie Klamperens.
1: And I'm Raymond Docapel.
0: And today we are going to do something that we have never done before which is talk about a video game. Raymond, are you a gamer?
1: No, no, but I'm game for sure.
0: <laughs> Good.
1: I I think that maybe we should have introduced this episode as... Welcome to Unreliable Narrators, where we discuss media literature and the arts and how they are not related to the Mars Hill list.
0: Uh. <laughs> okay, okay. Here's my defense. Undertale used to be on the Mars Hill list.
1: Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know that.
0: Trinity gave a speech on Undertale, actually. Okay. long okay. ago.
1: Okay, so you called me on the phone with this introduction, you said, Raymond, do you play video games? And I said, no. And I say, and you said, I, I don't play video games either, but I am absolutely obsessed with this video game right now. And then you went off for like an hour and a half explaining <laughs> how great this video game was. Um, so so it has really, it's reached Sophie's impeccable standards for video games. and True. And knowing Sophie, I kind of understand why it appeals to her. So. Yep.
0: <laughs> Great point. We'll we'll get into a little bit of that, I think, as we go. Why? It is, well, I, I, my defense is also, it's not just me. This is a very popular video game. This was almost an immediate cult classic status but cult classic sort of implies that there's something wrong with it maybe and that people just kind of latched onto it for whatever cultural reasons but it really is in my opinion just that good and that's the source of its popularity
1: how when did it come out 2015
0: 2015 okay yeah so it's so a little bit about the game undertale if we didn't say that before that's what we're going to talk about is the game undertale uh so it came out in 2015 like we just said It was made by one guy whose name is Toby Fox. He had a little bit of help on some character design from his friends. You can see that in the credits. But for the most part, it's really just this one guy who's making a game on his own definition of indie developer, right? He's doing his own thing, which given the sheer amount of writing that went into this game... That's a huge deal, even if he wasn't doing the programming, just as a writer. It's lots and lots to put together, but then he's also doing the programming, and he wrote the music, and he designed most of the main characters. Um, So it's really a huge accomplishment, even just in terms of the, the magnitude of the amount of game that this one guy was able to create.
1: And also, one of the things that I wasn't expecting, I don't know why I expected this, but when you were describing it to me, I thought it was a like a 3D game. You know, I don't know actually the correct terminology. I hope we don't have a lot of gamers on this podcast, but there's a difference between the 3D game and the game where it's like 2D and the guy is just kind of like going along the, the plane, you know, on a 2D plane and jumping over. What do you call that? I know there's a specific name for it. But,
0: well, I, th- I think it's just 2D games. I know my older yeah. brother, Caleb, who works in... He wrote our theme music and he works in video games. I i was trying to talk about Undertale one time and I apparently mistakenly referred to it as an 8-bit game. And he corrected me and told me that it was actually harkening back to the era of 16-bit arcade games. So I don't know what that means, but okay, apparently so, it is 16-bit.
1: So arcade game. And actually, and actually I think that that the medium, the style of video game is very appropriate for what the story is trying to say. And actually, when I saw it, when you showed me the clips for it, it made a lot more sense to me, like the point of the story. I think that there is something about the fact that it decided to do it in an old style arcade game where you can sort of, it's very pixely, you know, and bad graphics Mm -hmm. and everything. Um, Because it is kind of, it kind of reminds me of like, claymation if you watch claymation sometimes you can see the fingerprints uh, of the artists on the characters Mm -hmm. and it has that very handmade feel it gives you the sense that you are watching something that is made and so this definitely brings attention to the fact that this is a video game and that's probably one of my biggest objections to contemporary video games um, because the graphics get so good you know you're walking around on the city and you can see your reflection in the puddle that you right. walk over and it's ridiculous and it's it's impressive but but it, but you really lose track of the message I guess at least you're not able to convey a message this is this is a a video game I think that is really encouraging you to even to even think about the nature of video games right. um, and the nature of binary choices of either or.
0: Yes. Actually, okay, so I think it's helpful to think about this game in the context of what someone playing it for the first time without any prior knowledge might experience when playing it. So first of all, we all know, we are all aware, that when when people complain about video games, what's the number one complaint, right? What's the reason that, besides, you know, saying, oh, kids spend all their time playing video games and they're not reading books and they're not playing outside or whatever, besides that complaint... What's the main complaint you hear about video games? It is that they are too violent. Right? There's this idea that you, as a player, are going around shooting... Maybe it's people in a war game. Maybe it's robots or aliens or whatever. But for a first-person shooter, which is a very popular kind of video game, there's lots of violence involved. Playing Call of Duty. Whatever. Video games are violent. That's a lot of people's complaint about video games. And... There is a certain terminology and a way that you think about those kinds of video games um, that's just kind of common that gamers in general tend not to question, I would say. So, for example, most games you play where there is an option to kill people or kill characters, um, you gain, like you level up as you accomplish more. And accomplishing more means killing more people. And some common terminology that you might see is, Like you might gain levels, like you level up when you do, when you kill enough people or you gain experience points or something like that. And so you gain experience points and you level up and that makes it easier and you get more gear and stuff like that. So violence sort of perpetuates more violence in a typical video game. And that's a good thing. And that's not even something that you might think about when you're playing a game like Call of Duty or any kind of first person shooter game. Okay, so given that background, knowing that about generally the way that lots of people experience video games, imagine that you're playing this game for the first time and you know nothing about it. So it's 2015, you open up this game, the very first thing that the game asks you to do is to name the fallen human. You choose a name, and then the name that you choose ends up being the name that it seems like you're being referred to throughout the game. Um... You actually find out later that that's not really your name, but that's not important right now. You name the fallen human. That's the first thing you do. You immediately are told this backstory in the the intro cutscene of the game, which is that there, long ago, was this war between humans and monsters. The humans won the war, and they took all the monsters, and they sealed them underground with a magic spell that created a barrier. The rules of the barrier are basically that any human with a human soul, because the human soul is very powerful, can go in through the barrier, or theoretically, out of the barrier. But a monster soul is not strong enough. A monster soul would have to be combined with a human soul. Um, And it would take seven human souls to break the barrier for good and free the monsters from the underground. So we're immediately given this backstory, and then... You, the protagonist, wake up on this bed of golden flowers. Having fallen down uh, through a hole into this mountain, you're in the underground. Um, you immediately meet this, like, pixelated cartoon yellow flower who introduces himself as Flowey. And Flowey says, Hey, you're new to the underground, aren't you? Well, let me tell you how things work around here. And Flowey immediately tells you... "Uh." You want to gain LV, which he says stands for love. He says, you like love, right? Everybody loves love. We want to gain that. So um, he immediately tricks you into running into these things that he calls friendliness pellets that you find out are actually bullets. So Flowey pretends he's your friend. He acts nice. And then he tries to kill you. And he introduces you to his life philosophy, which is in the underground, in this world, it is kill or be killed. That's the only way to survive. But you are saved from Flowey by a goat-like monster who's very motherly. Her name is Toriel. She saves you. She brings, her, she brings you to her home. And she says, you're going to stay with me. I don't want you to get hurt. The underground isn't safe. And she wants to adopt you as a child, basically. But obviously, you as the protagonist want to go home. And you keep insisting, hey, I want to go. I want to go home. And she eventually... Decides, okay, enough's enough. You can't leave. And she tries to seal off the door to the underground, which would be the only way out. The only way you would make it to the barrier and be able to escape the underground. And when you show up and you kind of insist, I want to leave, she says, okay, fight me then to prove that you are strong enough to make it out there. Okay. So again, it's 2015. You have never, you know nothing about this game. You are assuming that nothing you do matters, right? You're assuming that you can't affect the outcome of this game, that... In most games, if you fight a character and the game doesn't want the character to die, you'll just get to a point where you fought and fought enough, and then finally they'll give up and say, okay, fine, you can go, right? So that's every- what everyone is expecting. Most people playing this game for the first time accidentally killed Toriel. Because they thought, okay, she said, fight me, so I'm just mm-hmm. going to take her at her word and fight her. They didn't realize that there you would actually have to choose to spare her. And so people... in in the initial version, would accidentally kill her without realizing that there is a choice here, that in this game you get to choose what kind of person you are going to be, and your choices have consequences. Your choices matter, because in most games your choices don't matter. If you don't kill Toriel, if you take her advice, which is to spare the monsters that you meet, you're not going to kill anybody, and you spare her, then when you leave toriel's home when you head out into the underground you encounter flowey the flower again and flowey delivers this monologue flowey says i bet you feel really great you didn't kill anybody this time but what will you do if you meet a relentless killer you'll die and you'll die and you'll die until you tire of trying what will you do then will you kill out of frustration or will you give up entirely on this world and let me inherit the power to control it I am the prince of this world's future, don't worry my little monarch, my plan isn't regicide, this is so much more interesting. And then you head out, and then the the game's title appears, Undertale. So that's the, the exposition, that's the introduction to this game. So a couple things there that I want to talk about before we move on. So the first thing is, that kind of introduces the idea that this is a game where you can make choices, and there are three basic endings that you can get in this game. The first ending is the neutral ending, which is where you kill some monsters that you encounter, especially, you know, probably the monsters that are most difficult or who seem the most evil. And so you might think, out of self-defense, I'm going to kill them. But then you spare a lot of monsters, especially the harmless monsters. So you might get a neutral ending there. Um, There is the pacifist ending, which is where you don't kill anybody. And that's, like, the happy ending, right? That's the ending where you are able to free the monsters in the underground and lead them all up to the surface. And then the third ending, which is the hardest to get, is the genocide ending, which is where you kill everyone. You don't spare a single monster.
1: And what's the message that you get at the end of the genocide ending?
0: Well, the entire world is destroyed. So you kill absolutely everybody and you're left just with yourself, basically. And it's very dark it's very depressing. It's pretty emotionally disturbing. I have no intention of ever <laughs> trying to do a genocide run because it would be too too much for me, too difficult. Um, but the game is very negative about the genocide ending. The game is constantly telling you, if you are pursuing a genocide ending, the more people that you kill. There are characters who are telling you to turn back. There are characters who tell you to change your mind. Um, it is... We'll talk a little bit more about what happens in the genocide ending later. But the game is very anti Anti the genocide ending
1: there's also resistance, no matter which one you choose, right? Yes, I mean, even if you choose the pacifist uh, ending, you're also being taunted by characters to yes. kill people.
0: Yes, yes. there's encouragement both ways, um whichever way you choose. And I will say that it's more difficult to kill everyone than it is to kill no one, but it is also more difficult to kill no one than it is to kill some monsters. As in, pacifist is difficult, but it is not as difficult as genocide. So, there's some implications to that, and we'll talk about that later, maybe. But first of all, I want to talk about this idea of free will and choices, which you alluded to a little bit earlier. Um, I think it's so interesting that most people on their first run-through, because they're used to choices not mattering, just end up killing Toriel. And then regretting it because they don't realize that that was the thing that they could do. They don't realize that if you just keep hitting someone, they're going to die. Um, And of course, she's not going to fight back because she's a good person. Because she doesn't want to kill you. And that you actually can just fight her until she is dead. Um, And that Flowey's monologue makes the moral stakes clear in the wake of what happens with Toriel. What are you going to do when it is difficult to show mercy? What are you going to do when it is difficult to take a path that is nonviolent? Um and how do you deal with that free will in a game?
1: And do you have the option to not fight at all? Mm-hmm. I yes. mean, is that what it means to be pacifist? So that's what I also didn't understand is when the protagonist fights Toriel. Right. Like, it seems that all that he's doing is just dodging stuff.
0: Right. Yes. So you throughout the whole game have two options. Well, you have multiple options.
1: But 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 you can fight Toriel and then defeat her and then show mercy, and that wouldn't be killing them. Would that still make you put you on the neutral track, or would you could still be pacifist? You if you fight at all,
0: no, you're on so, the neutral. No, you can fight.
1: But you don't have. You could fight and not kill her.
0: Right. Yes. you. It's pacifist as long as you don't kill anyone. Um, so, it's not that you can't be violent at all. It's that you cannot kill. So, you always, with every single monster, reach a point where... Because you have um, four buttons on your screen during a fight. One of the buttons says fight. One of them says act. One of them says item. And then one of them says mercy. And you can fight... Which just is, you know, you're hitting a person. Um, You can act. And acting is usually something like tell a joke, uh, play music, whatever. Random things that might help you to, like, convince this person. Sometimes there's, like, persuade. some, You know, different things for different monsters. Um, Items are just normal, like, healing stuff. Um, Although they can be weapons that you could use to help you with fighting. But then the last option, which is mercy that option you can't use until you've reached a certain point. So either you've done enough actions that you've kind of softened up this person that they're willing to be spared or they're willing to stop fighting you. Um, Some monsters, it's very easy. Some monsters, you can immediately spare them because they're really not interested in fighting you. Some of them, it takes a long time. But there is always at some point the option to spare a monster. Whereas um, you can fight from the very beginning. But it is true. So you don't... You don't have to abstain from fighting entirely. You have to abstain from killing. And that's the only way to achieve the pacifist ending. So my question related to free will and the idea of choices in this game, I guess, is what is Toby Fox trying to say when he creates a game where there is some intentional tricking of the gamer, right? There's He creates a world in which you think that your choices don't matter, but then you discover in the initial beginning of the game, it's designed so that you find out, oh, wait, my choices do matter. I am able to affect the outcome of this game. Um, and there is a moral choice and there is an immoral choice the way that the game is presenting it. And it is completely up to me which option I'm going to choose. What do we think about that? How does that relate to other video games?
1: Well, I think that one of the things that you see commonly across all mediums, especially when you mediums of storytelling, especially when you want the artist wants to at least create something that they would consider true art, right? You know, great, a great novel or a great movie, something that would be elevate this beyond the parochial and the genre specific into something that is transcendently true. And, When an artist sets out to do that, in almost every single case, the particular medium that he or she is working with inevitably ends up being reflexive. What do I mean by that? I mean, it ends up being self-referential in a sort of satirical and self-deprecating way. It always has to—I mean, like, you always have to—at some point, when you push the medium to a farther—to a far enough extent— you have to question the validity of the material that you're working with. Um, When you are trying to push the limits of film, you're also questioning the validity of saying what you're saying with film. Um, And I'm in Asian studies right now, and one of the most famous novels written in China is called Dream of the Red Chamber, Story of the Stone uh, by Cao Suixin. And this whole book is about how words are fake and how everything that you see in this book it's like did it really happen because novel the, the the language itself is misleading so it's always causing calling attention to the problem of language and that's the that's the material that you have to work with when you're writing a novel and that is also true of like James Joyce too to some extent um, and other and other like complicated, intellectually dense novels. And so the the major problem when it comes to, let's say, film, for instance, is that it inhibits inner dialogue because everything is external. Everything has to be shown. So, So in order to transcend that, you have to question visuality. And... In the case of a novel, everything is mediated through language. And so in order to, to, uh, to transcend that, you have to question the validity of language. What is, what is the tool that you're working with when you are working with a video game? It's zeros and ones. No matter how sophisticated the graphics are, it is always a choice between either or. You either say yes or you say no. And and so if you want to make a video game that says something about life, that transcends the medium, the thing that you're going to have to do is call attention to the nature of the tools that you're using, which is the restriction of choice. Everything in this entire universe is built around saying yes or saying no. When in real life, not everything is an either-or situation. Uh, there are complicated situations in which you, 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 can't, really, you can't really do that. And you are talking also about the nature of violence, too, mm-hmm. um, inherent in video games. That's also something that you can't really escape, not because people who design video games have violent tendencies or that they want to create a violent story. It's that you're creating a virtual space and there's a goal... And there's an entity, which is you. and That's the part that you control. And then you have to reach those goals. I mean, that's kind of how games work. And and so even if it's like a dot hitting another dot, you know, you're hitting something. You're aiming and shooting at something. Um, Even a video game that's just about, like, shooting dots is shooting. And then Mm -hmm. usually if you want to add layers of complexity on that and tell a story— then the things that you're shooting ended up being characters. And those characters have stories and and that sort of thing. Um, So again, that's like, that's why like bringing the pixels out, making a pixelated two-dimensional game is to, I think that that, that's part of the point is he wants you to not forget even for a second that you're playing a video game because he wants you to think about it.
0: Yeah. Well, and the fact that if you play enough games where you your choices don't have consequences as in if you kill someone if you kill a character i guess there's kind of a consequence in the sense that you might level up or you might get more experience or you might gain more items or whatever but there's no there's no moral consequence there's no emotional consequence there's no psychological burden associated with killing anyone it's just kind of a thing that you do and when you encounter like a boss in a video game you have to kill them to proceed you cannot do it without killing them or maybe you don't right maybe you win the fight and then they surrender or whatever but the game takes control that's what a cut scene is is you win the battle and then suddenly we go to a cut scene where there's a played out story that necessarily happens And then we get back to the point where you get to choose whether or not you're going to go in this room or that room or whatever. So Toby Fox is definitely playing with that idea that you assume what you do with Toriel or what you do with the monsters in the beginning of the game don't matter. That things are going to happen or not happen in whatever way because this is a fatalistic world. Whereas it's not fatalistic, but also it kind of is because there are only three options ultimately for an ending that you can have. There are lots of little variations in that, but either you save everyone or you kill everyone or you do something in between. And I guess that's three options. That's not really a binary. But in order to get to any of those options, you have to make a binary choice. You have to either kill or you have to show mercy in many, many, many different encounters throughout this game. Um, And he's definitely satirizing that. He's definitely playing with the way that encounters typically happen typically happen in a game Mm -hmm. um speaking of which okay so i want to talk more specifically about pacifism but i think that to talk about pacifism it is helpful to to know a little bit of something that happens later in the game so after you exit into the underground you go on this journey you encounter a lot of different supporting characters that i'm not going to talk about in a lot of detail at this point But you encounter lots of monsters, and you really slowly start to discover that the word monster is a little bit misleading, because they're monsters in the sense that they're not human, but they're not any worse than a human. Um, They're a different kind of species, but they are also, they have souls, they want something, which is to escape the underground, they've been trapped down here forever, they want to see the sky again. There's this burden of suffering that's been placed upon them because of the fact that they lost the war to this to the humans. And you start to feel bad for the fact that you indirectly, your species, your kind, caused this to the monsters. And the monsters that are trying to kill you and to take your soul, to try and get out of the barrier and make it back up to the surface. It's hard to blame them in some cases. They're pretty sympathetic because they're here for their friends. They're here to save themselves and taking your soul would be the way that they could do it. Okay, so you are traveling, you're starting to learn this about the monsters. Um, You find out this prophecy, which is that there's this basically messianic prophecy, which is that the angel, the one who has seen the surface, will return, and the underground will go empty. So there's this prophecy that you see about the underground, and... As you are progressing, you are trying to make it to the barrier, which is at the surface. So you could make it home if you could cross the barrier. And theoretically, you've been told this whole time that you as a human with a human soul could cross the barrier on your own. Even though a monster can't, because a human has a more powerful soul. But just before, so there's the king of the underground, his name's King Asgore. You're told the whole time he's waiting for you at the barrier because he needs to take your soul... So that they can have seven human souls, so that they can break the barrier, and so that all the monsters can go free. Obviously, you don't want your soul to be taken, (laughs) but you also don't want the monsters to be trapped down here. And so there's this dilemma. And then the dilemma is made worse, because just before you face King Asgore, one of the characters that you've met and befriended along the way tells you this secret. Which is that this fact that you've been told is not true. That a human soul can't cross the barrier on its own. That you need a monster soul. Which means not only does King Asgore need your soul to be able to free the underground, but if you were going to escape, you would have to take his soul. Which, at this point, you haven't killed anyone, if this is a pacifist run, right? So, there's this moral dilemma. You would have to violate your own principles. You would have to kill a monster and take his soul in order to escape, in order to go home. So, what do you do? Either you let this king take your soul and die or you could um take his soul and you could go cross through the barrier and escape um and that choice is left up to you but that is also that moral dilemma is assuming that the level of nonviolence the amount the idea that you shouldn't kill any monster in this underground is is good um is a true stance is something that we should take so clearly the game has a stance on pacifism the game thinks that you should not kill. It thinks that you should not kill Asgore. Um, but what do what do we think about that? Is, that, is the game correct in that opinion? Um, I think we might have slightly differing stances on pacifism and what we think about this. So I'm curious to hear what your take is first.
1: Well, I actually, I don't really know. I haven't talked to a lot of pacifists, so I don't really know what their position is. Um, so I hesitate because I don't want to misrepresent what a pacifist point of view is. um I know that I certainly am against killing as i'm sure I'm sure most people are. It seems to me a little bit silly i think to to be opposed like the hippie movement during during uh the the seventies of just refusing or objecting to all forms of war because like the world is always at war and what are you going to do just sit there and be like well you shouldn't do that i don't know if that is really going to accomplish anything and i think there's a logical in, uh, inconsistency that i see in the idea of a total refusal to engage in any kind of combat and and what i mean by that and an example of this is harry potter And this is uh, a sort of dilemma that I thought in my mind just I couldn't it didn't make any sense to me because there's a very clear pacifist message in Harry Potter that's set up very early on in the series uh, because there's three unforgivable curses. One of them is torturing the one of them is making people do things against your will and the third one is the Avada Kedavra the killing curse and so killing is the one thing that you can never do and then later on in the series. This story culminates in an epic battle between the wizards and Voldemort's army. And in the text, and I'm reading the text, you have the wizards, uh, the Voldemort's army and his minions running around shouting, Avada Kedavra! And all the good guys are going around yelling, "Stupefy," Which is the, which is the stunning curse. So I'm like, okay, so all the good guys are now dying and all the bad guys are just getting knocked out. <laughs> and there's no way that you could win this battle. And the way that this question seemed to be evaded is by not being addressed at all, um, as far as I can tell. So, so yeah. I don't know if that clarifies the position on pacifism, um, but what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm more or less on board with what you said. I, I do think that... Pacifism in the context of this game, I think, is maybe a little bit different from just total absolute pacifism in every single possible circumstance. Um, So Flowey at the beginning of the game says it's kill or be killed in this world, which is a binary, Mm -hmm. right? That's a binary choice, like we talked about earlier. You can either kill or you can be killed. And that is true in this world, kind of. Except that there is a different option. There's a third option that Toby Fox creates, which is you can show mercy. Mercy is the third option. And there is always a point at which the person you are fighting, you could overcome them if you wanted to. But you don't want to. You are going to spare them. And every single monster reaches a point where they they are done fighting. They are willing to step back. They are willing to be spared. That is not necessarily something that is always true in the real world. Not every monster you fight is going to back down once you've defeated once you've defeated them. I'm actually kind of reminded of the last passage in the Aeneid, which is Aeneas um when he reaches Italy and he's uh fighting he has to engage in this battle in order to get the land that is eventually going to be all Belonga, which is going to lead to Rome, etc. He fights this uh military hero named Turnus. And Turnus is a complicated character. He's obviously an antagonist. He wants to kill Aeneas. They have this battle at the very end of the poem where Aeneas beats Turnus. He he wounds him. Turnus is on the ground. It's clear that Turnus isn't going to fight back and Turnus even asks for mercy. He begs Aeneas for mercy. And Aeneas considers this, and then he remembers that Turnus killed this friend of his, and he's so angry that he kills Turnus, and Turnus dies, and it's the very last line of the poem. And that's a troubling thing for Aeneas to do, because Turnus is on the ground, Turnus is asking for mercy. And I think that probably we would agree that you ought not to kill anyone who is asking you for mercy. Maybe we would disagree. Maybe we would disagree on that. But you as a person, if you are faced with someone who is not trying to harm you, even if they were, even if they had bad intentions towards you a moment ago, if they are incapacitated, if they are now unwilling to hurt you, to kill that person or to harm that person would be vengeance. And we would not want to show vengeance. Am I right in saying we'd probably agree about that?
1: Well, yes, but also I want to factor in not just the what we would might theoretically agree on, but the sheer emotional difficulty of doing that. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if the video game itself does necessarily the best job it could have. I mean, I know it does a good job. Don't get me wrong. Um, But what I mean is the protagonist, it's just Alex, or I mean, that was the version I watched. The, the protagonist is just you. And usually in the context of you have, you having your enemies begging for mercy, The offense was not committed just against you, but against you and your family and your people and your nation. I mean, that's what happens most of the time in the real world um, and in most contexts. And I don't know if the video game totally addressed that issue. Um, The fact that the difficulty of showing mercy is not just simply showing mercy, but showing mercy in spite of a harm that was inflicted upon you and all that is extend an extension of you because you're mm-hmm. embedded in this relationship of all these other people and so um I think that it's very easy for us to say that like well yes we should show mercy. I think that it was CS Lewis who said everyone says forgiveness is a wonderful thing until we have some someone to forgive.
0: Right. And I do think so it is helpful since we're thinking about this as Christians to think about pacifism or as showing mercy as obviously a Christian idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about Matthew ten sixteen and Christ saying, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But Christ doesn't say be like fierce, like a lion. <laughs> he didn't mm-hmm. say to attack anybody. He says, be wise as serpents
1: Yeah, well, he says this extremely difficult uh, dichotomy, you could say, and Mm -hmm. it isn't an either or, it's a both and situation, which is very difficult for people to swallow. And I think most of the time we, instead of being able to maintain both of these at the same time, we end up being one or the other, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that that's my objection to what I hear a lot of people when they say that they're pacifists. This is my main objection to it is that they say uh, you know well i'm not going to fight because killing is wrong mm-hmm. and and i don't know if that that really makes you puts you in a, like a superior position like mm-hmm. you may have the moral high ground but what's your actual high ground at this right. point um like when and even in, this, in the case of the video game when you're presented with the option fight or show mercy you're actually, there's fight, act, or show mercy. Showing mercy is not actually an option until you've done one of the two of the other first two things. Right. Which I think is very interesting because like you can't just show mercy when you are in a position of weakness. And I think the, the story that really comes to my mind, and I think this is a great example of mercy in the Bible, is when David spares Saul's life in First Samuel. Because you remember Saul has a vendetta against David and he's chasing him to kill him. Uh, He's out in the cave in the wilderness, right? Saul goes Mm -hmm. into the cave to relieve himself. And uh, while he's relieving himself, David sneaks up behind him. Saul doesn't know he's there. And, And he says, I'll read this here. Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you then david arose and stealthily cut off a corner of saul's robe and then and then later um, after saul left he comes out and calls after saul and shows him the the garment and says look here was an up op- i had i had it in my hand and i think that that, that is an excellent example of mercy and you see that constantly in the Bible, it's always after you've won the battle. You know. Right. But David did kill Goliath. I don't know. But he wasn't begging for mercy, so
0: True. You know, we- True.
1: <laughs> he did just cut off his head. So
0: Well, okay, so I think there are two things that are going on in the game. First of all, I think it's really important that the game tells us that a human soul is more powerful than a monster soul. As in, if you wanted to kill all of these monsters, you could. And you can, right? That's an option in the game. So it's not, you are never in a position where you are so outclassed that you must kill in order to survive. That's never something that is going to happen in this game because you are always capable of killing the monster that you encounter, which means that you are the powerful one. You are the one who is capable of showing mercy. Um, it reminds mm-hmm. me a little bit of, so when Christ is, has been betrayed in the garden, and they're taking mm-hmm. him and Peter cuts off the ear of the soldier and Christ takes the ear and he puts it back on, right? He heals the soldier's yep. ear, which is fascinating to me in part because it reminds us that Christ could, Christ is not vulnerable in the sense that if he wanted to strike down all of these people, he could in this moment but he is choosing not to and the very act of him not fighting back is an act of mercy because he wouldn't have to. He's he's God. He can do whatever he wants in this situation and instead he chooses to heal the soldier's ear because he knows what has to happen, which I think is in line with the fact that when Christ comes, everyone has expected for so long for the Messiah to be this military leader and to throw off Roman oppression and come as... Someone who's going to do violence in order to free the Jewish people, and he doesn't come to do that. He doesn't come as a killer. He comes to be killed. He comes as a sacrifice. And you, I think, going back a little bit to the moral dilemma associated with fighting Asgore and the fact that you would have to kill Asgore um, mm-hmm. in order to you. You,
1: you're, you mean you, not me? As in you? Yes. You in sorry. The, the
0: protagonist. I should say the protagonist. Yeah. Um, the protagonist in the game who could escape were he to kill Asgore, but is not only going to show mercy to Asgore, but that is also a sacrifice because as far as the protagonist knows at that point, that means staying in the underground forever. And of course it is going to lead eventually to everyone being freed, but you, the protagonist doesn't know that at that point. Um, You ultimately as the protagonist are here in the underground To suffer for someone else's sins. Which is the sins of the original human that fell and, you know, caused all this and made this all happen. There's a quote that is really famous among people who like this video game, among fans. At the beginning of the game, when you are in Toriel's home... I forget whether you saw this in the clips that I sent you. I tried to get it in, but I don't know if I managed it. When you're in Toriel's home, at the beginning of the game, there's a mirror. And if you look in the mirror... The dialogue that appears at the bottom of the mirror is, it's you, which is very cute. And, you know, that's fun. And then at the Mm -hmm. end of the game, when you are going into Asgore's house, so before you actually encounter Asgore, and you're walking through his home, which is a replica. It's exactly the same as Toriel's home. So it's a parallel to the beginning of the game. And when you go up to the mirror, if you are on the pacifist route, it says, despite everything, it's still you. Which is, you know, Undertale fans put that on, on t-shirts and <laughs> mugs and stickers and all that, that quote. Despite everything, it's still you. And that quote is really interesting to me because I think it implies that showing mercy, choosing not to kill in vengeance or in anger or in frustration or anything, is a way of preserving your own soul. It's not just to help everyone else. It's you are going to keep yourself intact. When you see yourself in the mirror at the end, it was you at the beginning, and it is still you. Despite everything, it is still you. Which I think also relates to before. So, before you fight Asgore at the end, there is a judgment that takes place where there's this character named Sans who appears and judges you for your actions in the game. And if you are on the pacifist route, so if you have not killed anyone, this is what Sans says. He says, You never gained any love, which stands for level of violence. Of course that doesn't mean you're completely innocent or naive just that you kept a certain tenderness in your heart no matter the struggles or hardships you faced you strive to do the right thing you refuse to hurt anyone even when you ran away you did it with a smile so there's the sense that pacifism or mercy maybe towards others is a way of preserving yourself and your humanity
1: Yes, and I think that also this is another instance of reflexivity in the novel. Uh, I called it a novel. Reflexivity (laughs) in the video game. That should be a compliment, that little Florian slip there. I almost called it a novel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very Um, pleased. Yeah. Um, Because because it spells love, L-O-V-E, in capital letters as an acronym. And then it says, you did not gain any love, capital letters, but you game love lowercase letters. And of course you as the reader automatically know instantly, like instantaneous understanding of what the difference between these two things is. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that the video game doesn't know, right? Uh, the video game doesn't, the game itself doesn't have any kind of conscious awareness. Um, of the fact that there's a difference between love as as the acronym and love that is the concept of love. Like our, our current concern right now with like chat and everything about humans gaining consciousness. I mean AI gaining consciousness and and all of this sort of thing. Um, this is only a concern insofar far as you believe that the brain is construed in a certain way, and that is that you believe that the brain is exactly like a video game um, made up of zero, zeros and ones and either or cho- choices. And in that case, obviously chat GPT can outperform you. Um, AI can overcalculate you. Um, unless you are a human being and something else, if you're something more than a human being. Um, can a computer or a video game understand what was signified when you say the sentence you didn't gain any love l-o-v-e but you gained love um clearly that the fact the the way that that sentence is constructed is pointing towards you and your ability to be a human and again this goes back to the fact that Choosing the pacifist route, the moral dilemma that's being set up. I think what's so interesting about it is that at any point you could stop doing that. There are other mm-hmm. options, right? Um, and sometimes you can you could do tiny little options. It's not always fight or show mercy. Sometimes it's comfort or don't comfort. Right. And there's and there's and that's like a such a tiny little thing. And even if you chose don't comfort, you could still win and get the pacifist route, right? but the fact that they gave you the choice to say comfort or don't comfort this person, you're almost inevitably drawn to choosing comfort. Uh, You don't even want to to choose the other option, even though you could technically still be pacifist. And that way the video game is kind of manipulating you a little bit and pushing you and putting you in a position where you have to behave in a certain way. So it is calling attention again to your conscience.
0: That actually... I think brings us to this final sequence that we get only in the pacifist route. So Mm
1: -hmm. basically
0: everything I'm about to talk about happens at the very end of what is normally the neutral route. And then there's this whole extra ending that happens only if you have spared everyone, if you have pursued this pacifist route. So when you are in the new house right? So Asgore's home that looks like Toriel's home and you're walking through, you are told this story, this background story, which is, it's my favorite part of the game. It's so moving to me. The music is beautiful. The story is really, really well told. It's a really delightful sequence. You should go watch it. Look up new home undertale, even if you don't ever play the game. Uh, You're walking through this home and here's the story that you're told. So you learn that the first human who fell into the underground was a child, just like the protagonist, just like you, who was adopted by the king and queen, who were Asgore and Toriel. And they had a son already, who was the monster prince, Asriel. And Azriel and this fallen human, this original fallen human, were like brothers. They were adopted brothers. The original fallen human, uh, the child, came up with a plan to escape the underground and get six human souls. But this child died before he and Azriel could make it happen. And the human child's last request was to see the golden flowers that were growing in his town. Remember Flowey, the original character we met, was a golden flower. Um, So that's this human child's last request. As he's dying, Asriel, the monster prince, absorbs the human soul. Because you may remember it takes a monster and a human soul to cross the barrier. And he carries his brother's body to the town so that he can show him the golden flowers. But... The villagers of the town see what they think is a monster carrying a dead child, and so they attack Asriel, who, in his own pacifist moment, will not fight back. He does not fight back against these villagers who are attacking him. He is fatally wounded. He stumbles back into the underground, falls at the feet of his parents with his brother in his arms, and they're both dead. Uh, Asgore, the king, is so enraged that he declares war on humans, and that's the point at which he says he's going to kill every human who falls down there, that he's going to take their souls, he's going to break the barrier. Uh, Toriel, his wife says, no, she's going to keep the humans safe from Asgore, which is why they separate, which is actually why they have identical homes on opposite sides of the underground. It's because Toriel is at the entrance of the underground to save the human children who fall, and Asgore is at the end to take their souls so that he can break the barrier. So you learn this story, this background, and you encounter Asgore, and you're obviously faced with his moral dilemma, which is, am I going to take his soul and escape, or am I going to allow myself to be taken so that they can escape? What am I going to do? And Asgore even sort of tries to push that because you have this mercy button that you've had the whole time, right? But at the beginning of your fight with Asgore, he takes his, uh, his weapon and he stabs the mercy option. So you don't even have the mercy option for this entire fight with Asgore. But at the end, it comes back. You do have this option to spare Asgore. And if you do, then you find yourself fighting the real villain who is the golden flower, it is Flowey the Flower who told you it is kill or be killed at the beginning of the game. And you find out, though, after you defeat Flowey, if you show Flowey mercy, which is very difficult because Flowey is infuriating <laughs> and very hard to beat. So. But if you do, if you show mercy to Flowey, you find out. And I'm I'm paraphrasing a little bit. There's a lot of plot that goes on here, but. The gist of it is you find out that Flowey is actually the reincarnated form of Asriel, the prince who died, who, through a bunch of experimentation by the royal scientists, ended up coming back as a golden flower, but without a soul. And that turned him into the monster that he is. And you are faced with this uh, decision where the quote the quote in the game is, after you've saved all your friends from Asriel... And you're left with, like, this villain who's the final villain that you have to defeat. The quote is, the narration is, maybe with what little power you have, you can save something else. And there's a pun with save, like, saving a game and saving Mm. a person. So maybe with what little power you have, you can save something else. And you reach out and you remind Azriel of who he is. And you remind him of the love that he had for his brother, which is the reason that he died. And that is what brings Asriel back into himself for at least a little bit of time. Um, And you have this really kind of heartbreaking encounter with Asriel, who apologizes for what he's done. He explains that when I was this flower, I couldn't feel any compassion or love. And that's what made a lot of this happen. He says, I hurt you. I hurt everyone. And he asks you to forgive him. Which is where you have... You were referring this a little bit earlier. You have two options. There's forgive and do not and you don't have to forgive him you can choose forgive asriel or don't forgive asriel and after that when so asriel starts crying because he feels bad about everything that happened you have two choices you have comfort and do not and you have to decide whether or not you're going to go give him a hug or whether you're not going to
1: so what happens if you don't forgive him
0: uh he says he understands the game moves onward the game seems to acknowledge that everything that Asriel has done as Flowey is terrible enough that it would kind of make sense if you didn't want to forgive him. But, mm. of course, I think almost everyone who makes it to this point does forgive. <laughs> they they click the forgive option, and they click the comfort option. Um, because you've come so far that to not forgive Asriel would feel like Betraying what got you here, which is showing mercy. Um, maybe with what little power you have, you can save something else, which is this person, which is Azrael, who seemed like the worst of the worst demon, and it turns out is actually in some mystical sense your brother. So there are a couple things that I think are interesting about that idea of forgiveness. Um how do you think? Do you have any thoughts about why we have this message about forgiveness at the end of a game that is mostly about showing mercy. So for the most part, the point of the game is, do you kill or not kill, right? But forgiveness feels almost like a different thing, where you're faced with this person who has hurt you more than anyone in this game, and you have to make a choice about that too. You have to forgive or not forgive. Is that choice just as important as the choice to kill or show mercy? Or is it just kind of a side, a side thing? Just kind of like icing on a cake.
1: It's interesting that you use the phrase "icing on the cake." Um, <laughs> I thought about this a lot, and in the context, actually, the story of Ruth, I've thought about this, um, and the, and in this context, actually, this isn't really an issue of forgiveness specifically, but it is somewhat similar because it has to deal with a moral choice right where a choice is set up where if you didn't make that choice no one would really hold anything against you and Mm -hmm. yet there is some kind of imperative and so what am I talking about I mean okay so there's it's the story of like Naomi right Naomi and her daughters-in-law in in the country of Moab of Moab it's uh, both of uh, Ruth and her sister uh, their husbands have died right they're widowed. Naomi mm-hmm. is also widowed. And they're in a foreign land. And so Naomi tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their home country, uh, leave her here uh, because I'm old. There's nothing left for me. So leave me. Return to your homeland. Find husbands for yourself. And one of them beats her breasts and is very sad to leave Naomi. And she leaves. And there's nothing in the text that like condemns her action which is interesting because the Bible is always very clear of when the narrator is not okay with the action that was made, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the Lord, and, and also it's clear, clear when Yahweh is, and the Lord is not pleased with the action that is made. Yeah, And there's a, there's, a, there's, a dis, there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of pushback between go, no, we want to stay. No, you need to go. Now, so Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, kisses her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And this is just such an interesting, it's such a powerful speech in the Bible, I think. She says, your sister, uh, Naomi says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And that's just such a moving, that's such a moving speech. It, it, it really, it, it moves me in mm-hmm. a profound way when I read that. And we like, you inherently have this sense that Ruth is really the hero of the story. That was a very heroic thing to do. In, 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 but it transcends any kind of moral imperative. I think especially since she didn't have to do it, and it wouldn't have been wrong for her to do otherwise. And Ruth the Moabite also becomes the part of the bloodline that leads up to the birth of Christ. And when the angel comes to Mary and says, uh, you shall bear a son, Mary says, uh, behold me, a bond servant of the Lord, Let it be done to me according as you say. And again, that's like a that's an act of free choice. Now, what would have happened if Mary had resisted that? I don't know. I don't Mm -hmm. really know what would have happened. But I think that there's a precedent set up that there is something that's truly good that we ought to accept that there's an ought to, even though there isn't an ought to. You know what I mean? Mm hmm.
0: And that there's even, there is some salvation tied up with that, that salvation lies in a choice to do something that you would not have to do, that no one is forcing you to do. I'm reminded a little bit of The Tale of Despero, which is a Kate DiCamillo children's novel, which is very wise, I think. And there's this scene where Despero, who's our main character, who's a little mouse, and the the only thing you really need to know to understand this is that Despero at one point in the story is condemned to death, and his father sides with those who are condemning his him to death. So his own father is, um, as Despero is going to his execution, his father is beating the drum that is that is leading them along, and so this is the quote from the book. Despero looked at his father. "'at his gray-streaked fur and trembling whiskers "'and his front paws clasped together in front of his heart, "'and he felt suddenly as if his own heart would break in two. "'His father looked so small, so sad. "'Forgive me,' said Lester again. "'Forgiveness, reader, is, I think, "'something very much like hope and love. "'A powerful, wonderful thing. "'And a ridiculous thing, too. "'Isn't it ridiculous, after all, "'to think that a son could forgive his father "'for beating the drum that sent him to his death?' Isn't it ridiculous to think that a mouse ever could forgive anyone for such perfidy? But still, here are the th- words Despero Tilling spoke to his father. He said, I forgive you, Pa. And he said those words because he sensed it was the only way to save his own heart, to stop it from breaking in two. Despero Reader spoke those words to save himself. So I think that really fits with what you were saying, which is, he. it's, it's a ridiculous thing. It's ridiculous mm. to forgive that. And yet, there is power in doing it, partially because it is ridiculous. And that to go back to Undertale, Flowey is a horrible monster. <laughs> Flowey is the worst that you meet. Flowey uh, is, is what we would consider just pure evil, right? And yet, and yet, you start by sparing Flowey, who is the prince. Flowey is Azrael, but you don't know that yet. And so by sparing the worst monster that you can imagine. You are actually sparing, in some mystical sense, your own brother, but you don't know that. And then when that... he is revealed to be that. When Azrael is revealed to be basically your brother. And he says... He asks you to forgive him. And that you are saving yourself by choosing to forgive him. But you wouldn't have to, because it is ridiculous. It is for- ridiculous to forgive that. But you do it anyway.
1: One of the things... I think it's probably difficult about accepting Christianity is basically the presupposition that the devil actually has a legitimate claim upon our souls. Um, that's kind of the setup of the story. The, the idea that, you know, Jesus is fighting on our behalf and the devil is the bad guy, um, actually doesn't make a lot of sense. At least it's, um, it's not actually really what's happening here in the story. Um, by presenting the devil as as the the villain and the antagonist who's doing something unjust mm-hmm. right um because when the devil showed Jesus all the riches of the world what it that implies is that he owns the, all the riches of the world this is his territory this is my property is what he says and what what Jesus did in acting against that um acts is an act against what should have happened
0: the the last thing i want to say here very last quote i want to point out is at the very end i think if you could find one quote that sort of sums up what the moral message of this game is it's something that Azriel tells you so before you leave the underground before you lead everyone out and we have this harrowing of hell moment right where well actually because we didn't actually really tie this together the prophecy, right? So there's the angel, the one who has seen the surface will return and the underground will go empty. And you, the one who has seen the surface, the the protagonist, come down into the underground. You walk through the underground, not, not killing, not showing judgment, but showing mercy. And you make it to the end. And once you have finally done your last, most difficult task, which is to show mercy to the worst of the worst, the worst monster you lead everyone out the underground goes empty which is the harrowing of hell right this is christ taking bringing the sinners out of hell with him um so before that finally happens the last conversation you have is with asriel and asriel tells you he says there are a lot of flowies out there in the real world meaning of course the world we live in he's talking about outside the video game the real world there are lots of flowies out there and he says, don't kill and don't be killed. All right. That's the best you can strive for. Which is, we maybe could strive for a little bit better than that. <laughs> um, it's a little bit of a <laughs> of a pessimistic view of the world, perhaps. But he says that and then immediately afterwards you you lead your friends. You lead the monsters out into the real world. And there's this reuniting of the human world and the monster world. And so I think that maybe by doing that, you as the protagonist disprove a little bit what Azriel said. Asriel says, don't kill and don't be killed, and that's the best you can strive for. And immediately following that, you free the underground. And that seems a little bit better than just not killing and not being killed, that you have become the messiah of this world by showing mercy instead of instead of judgment.
1: Yeah, and I don't know like, what kind of... Uh, religious or spiritual background the creator is coming from but i mean the whole idea that there is a a specific way of engaging in a war-torn world in which you can preserve your soul is basically what paul was trying to get at when he said fight the good fight that's what it means yeah which is a fight it is a fight i mean it still has to be a fight um even if you are trying to, uh, e- even if you're in a, a rushing river and all you're trying to do is stand still, you are still fighting the current.
0: Right. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's the way to live.
1: Well, I'm glad that you uh, twisted my arm and to an uh, entire afternoon of watching this video game so, <laughs> did it and it was an entire afternoon so. I,
0: I tried to make it I tried to make it 45 minutes and I'm afraid to hear how long did it end up being
1: it, it took a while I don't know exactly how long it took um, but I mean at least I didn't you didn't make me watch all three versions that would have been what like 18 hours or something <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: or yeah, no I 27 did. hours because it's nine hours each version
0: i was i was sparing you i was showing mercy
1: <laughs> thanks for the mercy yeah thank you for listening yes. merciful listeners
0: thanks yeah. for humoring me
1: you've been listening to unreliable narrators a mars hill podcast unreliable narrators is an original podcast produced by Raymond dokopil and sophie belonkel you can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us, review us, or write to us at unreliablepodcasters at gmail.com, or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Our theme song is New Mood by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be talking about a particularly popular summer blockbuster. I'll give you a hint. It involves pink. Until then, friends, remember, video games always lead to love, or love. The choice is up to you. I know you
2: can see, something inside, the one part of me that I cannot hide. And maybe it's true, that nothing is new, but I can see so much more in you. There are no new words, under the sun. seven having strong. Sure.